You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Good afternoon, Missio family. Uh, my name is Ben, just like Charlie said. Um, it's been a pleasure to call you all brothers and sisters over the last two and a half years that my wife, Brittany, and I have been a part of this church. Um, and I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you today. Um, but before I jump in, I want to take a moment to recognize the sanctity of this space um, and the grace that it took to get all of you here today. It's a pretty miraculous thing. Um, the Lord is so, so good. And I just want to begin with that. I want to remember that we gather as a living testimony of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. That he calls you and I his people, his beloved sons and daughters. And he's in this space. Ephesians 2 says, we are a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And Charlie began Ephesians last week by talking about um, this little praise passage at the beginning of the letter that is dedicated to the God of blessing. And so I want to recognize that God of blessing before I dive in and the grace, again, it took us all to get here and the identity that he's given us. So I want to read the beginning of that passage and then pray with you, and then I'll begin. So Ephesians begins like this. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray. God of love, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy to us. Hallowed be your name. Lord Jesus, you teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you, Lord Jesus, be our daily bread? Would this word nourish our bodies? Would your forgiveness ooze out of us as we forgive each other? And would you leave us out of the way of evil and into life, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. One of my most vivid uh, early childhood moments was in the spring of 2010. I was in fourth grade when my mom, who's sitting right over there, started to notice um, some unusual patterns in my life. I was going to the bathroom multiple times an hour. I was hungry at odd times of the day, which is kind of like a thing that you expect teenagers, but coupled with the fact that I was losing weight rapidly, there was something going on that I didn't realize. I didn't seem to care or notice, but out of concern for me, she took me to the doctor. I remember waking up that morning, excited just to miss school as any 11-year-old would be. Yeah, I get to miss school today. I remember going to McDonald's just before and having this big bowl of chocolate ice cream just before I had received news that would change my life forever. When we were called back to see the doctor, my mom explained what had been going on. And I remember vividly the doctor saying to her, I'm almost certain. She looked kind of panicked as we were rushed to another appointment. And as we approached a stoplight, I looked over at her, tears in her eyes. 
And I didn't know what type 1 diabetes at the time was. And so looking at her, I said, Mom, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay, Mom. In that moment, she could see something that I couldn't. She knew what would affect my life in a way that I didn't know. She knew the struggles I was going to face growing up. She knew what health concerns would come down the road. She had a better understanding and imagination of what my life would look like than even I could imagine. She could see something, and it caused within her a kind of grief and sadness that I couldn't match. I couldn't match it, even though it was about my own life, because I couldn't fully comprehend it. See, our perception of reality, our ability to conceive and understand things in life, is directly related to how we're able to respond appropriately. Something we like to do here at Missio is take opportunities to break and learn from each other. And so I want you guys to take a moment and turn to people around you in groups of three or four. And I want you to share a time in your life where the light bulb just went off. An aha moment where all of a sudden something was revealed to you and you could fully comprehend and see something and your reality anew. So share with each other and I'll bring us back. All right, let's, uh, let's bring it back together. All right. Whatever uh, memory you came to mind, or whatever memory maybe you shared with someone else, I'm sure resulted in some sort of change to your life. Because true aha light bulb moments illuminate reality for us. And they result in new ways of seeing and living in the world. And I think this is similarly what Paul wants to do for us in the book of Ephesians. In the book, Paul wants us all to have this light bulb moment, this aha moment. And he hopes that his readers will deeply and fully comprehend the reality of what is going on around them. Because when we truly comprehend something, we respond appropriately. When we truly comprehend something, we respond appropriately. We see this extremely clearly in the way that Paul has structured his letter. Uh, the first half of the letter, if you didn't know, Ephesians is six chapters. The first three chapters are all exposition or teaching, what Paul wants us to know. Chapters one through three, it's really the gospel message and how it impacts a community. And the second half of the letter is primarily exhortation or teaching or, call, or calling um, commands in light of this new identity that you've been given. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, live like this. This is what the reader wants, or Paul wants the reader to do. Fascinatingly, we're, we're in the teaching section right now. Charlie kicked us off with chapter 1 last week, and I'm going to be jumping around to the prayer passages. But fascinatingly, the teaching section, which we'll di dive into next week, is sandwiched between two prayers. One prayer in chapter 1, and one prayer in chapter 2, and I think this is incredibly intentional. I think the structure of his letter reveals an insight into really the main thrust of the book. And in the structure alone, Paul's making a clear point that prayer is the means by which God, or the gospel, becomes deeply rooted in our lives. Prayer 
is the means by which the gospel becomes deeply rooted in our lives. So today we're going to look at these two prayers in chapters 1 and chapters 3. And this is going to be kind of an untraditional sermon-like thing because I'm not going to stay in one um, paragraph. I'm going to be jumping back and forth between these two prayers. So if you, in your Bible, if you open up to Ephesians chapter 1, if you could kind of put a thumb in chapter 3, maybe your Bible, it's small enough to where you can see both on one page, and that would be awesome. But we're going to be jumping back and forth between chapter 1 and chapter 3 a lot. And the reason really is this. I think the messages, though the language of the prayers are different, I think the message of the prayers are the same. I think um, there's a unity in this, and it's centered in the gospel message in chapter 2 with the prayers on the outside fueling a deeper understanding of that gospel message. So my hope today, because we're going to be jumping back and forth, I can't go into every detail, but I want to show you three overlapping points between the two prayers that speak to the unity of the prayers and what's really going on here. So I'll I'll share three points. But first, I'm going to read both prayers out loud from beginning to end. So if you could, open up to Ephesians 1, verse 15. I'm going to read through 23 and then jump over to chapter 3. So, Ephesians 1, verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I had heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now flip over to chapter 3, verse 14. He begins really similarly. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every nation in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All right, three points of similarity. One, Paul in both prayers prays about a revelation. He prays for something to be grasped by the community. In his first prayer in verses 17 and 18, he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they would know him better. Now that word revelation is a familiar word in biblical context and incredibly important. It's the name of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And many of us connect that with like the end of the world or an apocalypse. Fascinatingly, that Greek word revelation is 
or is the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our English word apocalypse. So when translated literally, this means an unveiling or an uncovering or a revelation. So it's not entirely off base to say Paul is praying for an apocalypse. I don't know if you've ever prayed for an apocalypse in your life, but that's what Paul's doing here. When you think of an apocalypse, you think of a monumental, catastrophic moment in history that's kind of destructive. And in Hollywood or like a movie context, an apocalypse is like the end of something good and the beginning of something bad, right? Like a zombie apocalypse. Now, Paul is praying for an apocalypse. He wants a monumental, catastrophic moment to occur in the reader's life. But it's not destructive. It kind of is. But it's not resulting in something negative. It's resulting in something positive, the birth of something new that leaves our understanding of reality completely transformed for the better. In verse 18, he continues and says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And this is really kind of just a similar way of saying the same thing. He's praying for an uncovering, an unveiling of reality that allows us to see with new eyes. But that word heart, the eyes of your heart, is really important because whenever you see that word in the Bible, it also carries a bunch of baggage. In the Bible, it's not real. when you hear, see the word heart, it's rarely referring to just simply the muscle that's pumping blood through your body or the emotions that you feel. Rather, the word in, the biblical, in, in biblical theology, the word heart really means um, the whole self. The heart is considered to be the central operating system of a person where the mind and the will and the emotions all come together to form you as a complete person. And so when Paul prays for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, what he is praying for is for our entire self to be transformed and reoriented. In other words, an apocalyptic moment where your entire being is transformed. In the second prayer, so we're going to jump over to chapter 3, Paul prays similarly that they would be able to, using a different word, grasp. Grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love. Paul's praying for the people to know something more deeply than they knew it before. It reminds me of a familiar uh, Pixar movie, Cars. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, I've had to see that movie like a million times because it's my wife's favorite movie. And um, she might be embarrassed that I'm sharing this with you, but I guess it's just like karma for making me watch it a million times. And because I've had to watch it a million times, I can't help but use it in an illustration, right? The movie begins with Lightning McQueen, a hotshot race car who's only concerned about himself. He's stuck in his ego and he just wants to win. That's all life is, that's all reality is for him. And the whole movie really is about Lightning McQueen having a revelation, having a change. He's having an apocalyptic moment in Paul's eyes where his reality is completely turned upside down and no longer just seeing the world through his own eyes, he begins to see the world through the eyes of others. And the movie ends with Lightning McQueen completely transformed and changed to where he actually gives up his chance to win for the sake of his fellow race car. It's not far off to say that Paul is praying for us all to have a Lightning McQueen-like story arc to our lives. 
He wants us all to be like Lenny McQueen. That coming to know our gospel identity would result in a wholehearted change and response. Paul prays, one, for a revelation. And two, he prays after that revelation for us to have a power, a means to respond. And he uses that word power in both prayers. So go back to the first prayer. In chapter one, Paul prays that uh, what would be revealed to the Ephesians is his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he describes that power, and he says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And then flip over to chapter 3. In the second prayer, Paul prays that they would have power to grasp the love of God. And then if you kind of keep reading and put his sentences together, that power leads to being filled to the measure of all the fullness of of God. He seems to be saying here that having an apocalyptic moment in your life, having a monumental change where you begin to see your new gospel reality for all it is, changes and gives us a perspective, this will result in a power, get this, that is reflective of Christ's resurrection and fullness, that you in your body can be a reflection of that resurrection and fullness. That feels too surreal to even fathom to be true. That sounds like something we sing about, but not really live about. But he's saying it right here, that the same power that rose Christ from the dead and his fullness of love could live in us. To capture the jaw-dropping reality of what that really is, I want us all to take a moment of silence and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna count to 30 in my head and would you for the next 30 seconds simply think about the potential of Christ's power and fullness living in you. What could that look like in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhoods? What could that look like? This week, I was scrolling through Twitter, and I saw an article written by the Gospel Coalition on Shia LaBeouf. Um, Whenever you see those three combinations together, (laughs) Twitter, Gospel Coalition, and Shia LaBeouf, it's usually not a good thing. Um, But that fascinating mix of people and ideas left me without the inability. I felt paralyzed to scroll. I had to click on it. Scrolling through the article, skimming through it, thinking to myself, what a shy I got himself into now. What I found was an article critiquing Shia's most recent conversion to Catholicism. Now I was hooked. (laughs) So I found the interview that the article was talking about, and I listened to the interview. And in the interview, Shia recounts the events of his conversion and talks about how the perspective switch in his life led to what he felt like a miraculous experience. Those are his words. He talks about how the events of his life that he once interpreted as suffering and brokenness now became the powerful means by which Christ came into his life and totally transformed everything. Nothing about Shia's circumstances in the moment had changed, He was still battling the negative consequences of his decisions and what he'd reaped in his life, but what did change was his perspective on those situations, which he called 
having a spiritual experience that felt supernatural. This experience of power in his life, he testifies, has kick-started the healing and redemptive work of God. Because having a true revelation results in a response of power, a change that reflects Christ's resurrection life and fullness in us. So Paul prays, one, for a revelation, two, for a response of power, and three, in both prayers, he prays for this whole shebang to happen in a community. He's speaking to community, not isolated individuals. Something I mentioned in the podcast a few weeks back was that we have to remember the audience who Paul is talking to, right? The English language is limited in the way that it uses pronouns, um, specifically um, in the singular and the plural tense. So when Paul says something like, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith, the English is quite limited there. We don't know who, who's the your, right? And because we're Western individualists, we automatically think the your is talking to, oh, your, me, right? But you have to remember that he's not talking to you, singular individual, 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years later, sitting in University Lutheran Church. He's not even talking to an individual like a buddy in ancient Ephesus. He's not speaking to one person. If we go all the way back to the beginning of his letter, in the first few verses, he reveals the audience to us. And that audience is God's holy people in Ephesus. So he's talking to people. He's talking to a group, a community. So whenever you see the word you and your in Ephesians, and really the whole Bible most, most of the time, the you and the your is most likely always referring to a y'all. Oh, like when he prays here, um, for this reason ever since I heard about y'all's faith. I think that would be a more faithful or translation. He's not talking to individuals, rather a community of people. And so first and foremost, we have to remember that these prayers, this letter is communal. These are communal prayers. These aren't prayers to be read in isolation. They're prayers to be read in community. Everything about having a revelation that leads to a powerful response is communal. But the communal element to these prayers are even more expressed in his language. We don't even have to do that kind of semantic jump of the you, y'all, all that. We can just read Paul's prayers because it's there. In the first prayer in chapter 1, he talks about how the powerful moment of Christ's resurrection that has seated him on the throne has made Christ, and this is at the end of that prayer in verses 22 and 23, has made Christ the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. So this power, this like apocalyptic moment of the resurrection has birthed a people, the church, which is his body. And then in the second prayer in chapter 3, Paul prays, and I think it's in uh, verse uh, 18, Paul prays that they would grasp Christ's love and become his fullness, and he says, together. This would not just happen individually, but this would happen as a together experience. In a teaching on Ephesians, Tim Mackey, who's the creator of the Bible Project, says this. He says, grasping the love of God requires a community of people who are unlike me. There are depths and dimensions of the love of God that are impossible for me to experience on my own. The implication 
of these prayers are that God's revelation and power cannot fully be brought to fruition in individuals in isolation. Grasping and being the fullness of God is a together process. And in a similar way, Paul wants us to understand that we, all these people in this room, we have a shared experience that bonds us together. We have Christ as the foundation of our life. We are the new humanity, this gospel identity that's been given us. We get to bond together in such a unique way that brings about God's fullness, his revelation, and his power in a way that could not be done by yourself. This community is vitally important in this revelation apocalypse process. So, in these two prayers, Paul prays for revelation that we would come to know and grasp something more deeply. He prays for the power of God to ooze and leak into our lives through that revelation and that that wouldn't be done in isolation but in community, togetherness. Paul models prayer as the way in which this revelation and power would flow into a community. And we'll find out next week that that revelation and power is in essence the gospel message. Like that's what it is. But if we were to just jump to that, most of the time what we would do in our brains is automatically jump to things that we need to learn or things that we need to know. Kind of propositional statements that are really good in their proper context. But before we dive into that, what we need to see is that Paul sandwiches prayer between that, that, that gospel message and he sees prayer as the means by which that gospel message is going to come and root itself deeply in our lives. It's fascinating to me that we are so quick to approach discipleship in the church, especially over the last 100 years, as something to know and something to do, which isn't all entirely bad, but it's been reduced that if we just believe the right things and do the right things, we'll be deeply rooted. Yet Paul, somewhat prophetically and subversively, challenges that and begins with prayer. He begins with a posture of receiving and abiding in God. He, re- he begins with a deep dependence and expectation that God will move. And this is a practice that the ancient church was committed to. So if we truly believe that, if we believe prayer is the means by which the gospel will root itself deeply in our lives, then the invitation for us is to be people of prayer, to be a people of prayer, that we might fully grasp the gospel and allow God's power to ooze out of our life together into our neighborhoods, our communities, and our workplaces. So I'm going to speak a little bit about prayer and then I'll lead you to the table. What is prayer? I think there are a lot of misconceptions about prayer. We often think of prayer as mechanistic or functional, like it's really just something that we do or ask of God. We often think of prayer as maybe private or fragmented from all of life, like it's really just something we do and we have a moment to get away. What we need, I think, is a more holistic vision of what prayer could be in our lives. Henry Nouwen says that when Paul talks about prayer, he does not speak about prayer as part of life, but as all of life. 
For Paul, prayer is like breathing, as if the breath of God that was breathed into you at creation, now every breath, inhale and exhale, is an act of prayer because it's God's abiding life in you. Leighton Ford says, prayer is an outward, careful attentiveness to the one who invites us to unceasing conversation, as in the God who walked with his people in the garden and called them to live their entire lives before his presence. We need a more holistic vision of prayer, one that strives for ceaselessness, one that recognizes that it is our creational intent to walk with our Father, one that is constant, abiding in all moments of our lives. Mother Teresa once said, and I love this quote, I find a way to say it every single time I speak, I feel like. She says, do not think of us as social workers. We are contemplatives in the midst of life. We pray the work. What would it be like if we prayed our work? So when I say prayer is the means by which the gospel becomes deeply rooted in our lives, what I mean is this kind of holistic vision of prayer. Not like kind of the reduced vision of prayer where we we pray as a transition to the next thing or pray before a meal for 15 seconds. What I mean is a vision of prayer that helps us grasp the bigger reality of the gospel and its endless dimensions for our lives. A kind of imaginative prayer that helps us walk through and experience the story of God in our lives. Here's my challenge for you guys. At your next MC gathering, and uh, if you're not in an MC, I'd encourage you to talk to Charlie, talk to Sarah, talk to Kenny or Megan, and they can get you into an MC, and they would love to do that. My encouragement, my challenge would be at your next meal, Would you spend time brainstorming a communal practice of prayer that you as a community could commit to and implement into the regular life of your MC? Some examples of this might be morning prayer gathering, maybe in someone's home before work or via Zoom. I know that people in this congregation have done that in the past. Shared community, maybe a shared community prayer calendar where you all pray for the same topics each day and partner with each other in that. Maybe it's prayer in the spheres and locations of your mission. So maybe it's actually going to that place and walking around, laying hands on places and maybe people who you, who you seek to experience the gospel and bring new life to. Maybe it's 30 minutes before and after a meal with no agenda, just a humble posture of what is God doing and where is the spirit leading us. Maybe it's reading some um, prayer or some ancient prayer literature from uh, ancient theologians or writers. Um, one of my favorites is Brother Lawrence and his book, The Practice of the Presence of God. Uh, if anyone is interested in, in getting it, I have it electronically and I can send out to anyone. I use that as kind of devotional literature to root and ground myself in prayer. Whatever that looks like, every community will look different and have different needs. But if prayer, and again, not this reduced vision of prayer, but this expansive vision of prayer, which really is just simply the movement of God in our lives, if prayer is the means by which the gospel roots itself in us, then we have to be people of prayer. It's imperative that we be people of prayer. And we must do it together, and we must create communal spaces for it. And so, one way we as a community already do this each week is through this table right over here. So if the band wants to come up and get ready, um, 
We come to the table each week to encounter the living Christ in a posture of receiving, to have our eyes open to the ways Christ and his grace are overlapping into our lives. Communion, taking this this bread and drinking this juice, is a deep act of prayer. And so I want to invite each of you to respond together. And as we prepare for communion, I would ask that the same groups that you got in at the beginning, the three and four people, I would ask that as you come and get communion, that you would wait and hold on to those elements. And would you take them together and spend some time, maybe one or two people praying for us to grasp as a community the gospel power that can redeem and renew and restore any situation and bring life into a community. And then my challenge would be that you eat the bread and the juice as slowly as possible. Something I've been trying to do over the last year is make that little piece of bread that I get last for the whole worship song. Because I know something's going on there that I can't explain. Something to which Jesus is hoping that I grasp a bigger reality And I can't do that. I'm too broken and distracted if I eat that quickly. So my prayer for you would be that you eat it slowly. Munch on it. Chew on it. Taste every part of it. Taste the beautiful sourdough that Megan has made. Every taste. And allow God and the Spirit to open your eyes. So... Every week we recite the mystery of our faith. So my invitation would be for you guys to stand up. And we're going to recite the words on the screen that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And as we declare that and practice communion, would he open our eyes to this bigger gospel reality? So would you say it with me? Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Come receive from the Spirit of God is revelation and grace for you.